Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Hi, I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, a hip and knee surgeon at Louisiana State University, where our department mascot is an alligator getting a booster shot. This is David Landy. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Kentucky, uh, where I currently operate, but I'm looking for new block time in the metaverse. Good morning from AUKUS. This is Leonard Buller, uh, academic orthopedic surgeon at Indiana University, and I'm happy to be in person. Hi, I'm Mark Mildred. I'm in private practice in Eugene, Oregon at the Slocum Center for Orthopedics. Happy to be at AUKUS in person for the podcast. Hi, I'm Jenna Bernstein. I'm an academic surgeon at Yale University in Connecticut, and I am looking forward to my podcast debut. Here at the AUKUS annual meeting, in today's episode, we're going to hear from Dr. Moiba Adelani and Dr. Mary O'Connor. Well, good afternoon, guys. My name is Muyabat Adelani, and I am in St. Louis, Missouri, and I am the co-chair of the Diversity Advisory Board here at AUKUS. So, Dr. Adelani, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about the Diversity Advisory Board and how it kind of got started and, and what you guys have been up to? Sure. So, the Diversity Advisory Board just started last year, actually, under Lowry Barnes. And the goal is to increase diversity of the membership of AUKUS and promote a more inclusive organization. So, we'll do that through data collection, mentoring, and educational opportunities. What are some of the goals or some of the, I don't want to say thrusts, but what are the specific projects that the Diversity Board is working on? So the biggest project we have right now is the census. So this is the first time that AUKUS has ever done a census of its membership. So we really don't even know what the demographics of our members are. So just as a plug for the census, if you're listening and you haven't completed the census, just log into your AUKUS profile and click census and you'll be able to complete that for us. That data is going to be really helpful for us going forward to try to make sure that everybody that wants to be involved in AUKUS can get involved. And I will say it's incredibly easy to do the census. There is no reason why anyone listening, all three of you, should not be doing the census because just log on to the app and swipe over and just says census, fill it out. It's really, really easy and it's going to help AUKUS. So do that. Just kind of before this podcast, we were talking about transitioning to a private practice from an academic center. What led to that decision? What were the factors in that decision? How do you feel about that? And then I guess we can spin off and go like where you think the future of academic orthopedics is. But first of all, like what made you go to private practice? Sure. So I was in academics for seven years total. And there are things that are great about academics. I love the engagement, engagement with trainees and with your colleagues. But I also like being engaged with patients. And I feel that community practices are a little bit closer to the patient because you're a little bit less bureaucratic. So I'm excited to join an organization that is really patient-centered. Cool. What do you see as the challenges for our field as more sort of leaders in arthroplasty migrate from a more traditional academic setting to a private setting? So the interesting thing about that is I think that from a leadership standpoint, AUKUS really bridges that, right? There are a lot of people that are part of AUKUS that are not in academics because we have an organization that is inclusive of us all. I think the key will be in terms of where our patients go and how we take care of patients. So one of the big downfalls or challenges in academics is inefficiency, right? It's a big conglomerate. It's difficult to navigate for patients. It's not 
efficient for high volume surgery like joint replacement, which is one of the reasons why I think joint replacement is kind of migrated out of the academic center. And I think one of the challenges will become, what does that mean for our patients? Many academic centers are located in urban areas and traditionally take care of underserved populations. Even those that are in rural areas kind of function in that way. So my concern would be if joint replacement is migrating from the academic center, are we going to create a new access problem for a segment of our population? And do you think over time the diversity board with AUKUS is going to transition from addressing our own diversity issues and trying to become more inclusive to maybe tackling some of the issues about diversity within our patients and different challenges they have. Yeah, that's definitely an interest of ours. We've actually already started engaging with organizations that do that type of work. So there's an organization called Movement is Life. It is chaired by one of our AUKUS members, Mary O'Connor. And that's a multidisciplinary organization that really focuses on musculoskeletal disparities. So it's not just orthopedic surgeons. There's also medicine physicians, pediatricians, physical therapists, and community members that are part of that group. So AUKUS really recently became a partner with that organization this year, actually. You know what's scary to me, being in private practice is like, for the most part, I feel like we lean on academic practitioners through research to really advance the field of orthopedics. If we start seeing a large amount of people leave academics, it's going to hurt our progress in developing new technologies and research and stuff like that. So I guess for for me on the private practice side, I really lean on you guys. I lean on you guys to like tell me what the right thing to do is. And if I don't have that, then it hurts patients. So for me, it's like a, that's a huge issue is are we going to see a lot of people leave academics for private practice? I think what will happen is first people will leave academic medical centers. They'll still be involved in universities, but they won't function at that center, if that makes sense. So they'll still technically be academic, but they will be practicing away from the academic medical center. But I also think that there's a great portion of AUKUS that's not academic that does produce research. Some of our biggest names are not in academics. So I think that'll be an interesting thing to juggle in terms of where does innovation come from and can we translate research practices to community settings. In some ways I think it would be beneficial to us all because most joint replacements are not done in an academic center. So maybe those patients aren't even representative of the whole and maybe we should take our research enterprises out to where the patients are. So a long time ago, you asked me whether the Williams sisters or the Manning brothers were more impressive. It's six years later. What are your thoughts? So the Williams sisters? First of all, I'm very impressed that you remember this. So Dave was an intern when I was in Chicago. And the fact that you remember that question is impressive in and of itself. The answer is clearly the Williams sisters. Yeah, 100%. First of all, their dominance of their sport is not the same as what the Manning brothers did. They didn't benefit from nepotism. And the Mannings did not, as far as I know, pop out a baby and then come back to playing. If they did that, then I would be like, okay, those it, two it are It might be comparable same. if that happened. I've seen Junior with Arnold Schwarzenegger. It can happen. They haven't done it. <laughs> so I, I'm with her, clearly the Williams sisters. Yeah, I think that answer has stood the test of time. And, I mean, they're still competitive. They're still on the tour. They're not necessarily winning every tournament, but the fact that they even qualify. Totally. It's all the changes that take place with, right? Yeah. Tell us about coaching. 
and then do a little plug for is it your own website or tell people about that sure so one of my interests outside of clinical work is coaching so if you don't know what that is coaching is essentially a guided process in which a coach helps you with your professional or personal development and it's an interesting concept because it's not something that is widely discussed in surgery. But sure. when you think of any other high impact person in any field, the Williams sisters, for example, they have coaches, right? And they're already elite and they still have coaching. But yet we start a very difficult profession with zero guidance. We kind of throw ourselves in the water and then say, I hope you can swim. Why do we do that? There's really no reason. I think that we really should embrace coaching as a way to really establish our careers in a more guided fashion. And so that's something that I've become more passionate about. So I do work as a coach through an organization called Surgeon Masters. So the website is just surgeonmasters.com. And you can find me or a number of other coaches on that website. And I'd be happy to come back and talk to you guys more about coaching in more detail if you want. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks again. Mary O'Connor, co-founder and chief medical officer at Vori Health past president of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, first woman member of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, chair of Movement is Life, which is a multi-stakeholder coalition focused on MSK healthcare equity, professor emerita of orthopedics at Mayo Clinic, and past professor and past director, Center for Musculoskeletal Care at Yale School of Medicine and Yale New Haven Health. Tell us what it was like to be the first female member of AUKUS and also the first and I believe only female president. Yes. Uh, you know, the, the challenges that you went through to, to get there. Well, like all of us, you know, my journey was one of mentorship and support. And of course, the support was all from male AUKUS leaders. Mm-hmm. In particular, Rich Santori was the president who asked me to be his program chair and that of course was a great opportunity for me to learn more to work more with the organization strengthen my leadership skills demonstrate my leadership skills and ultimately was what allowed me to move towards the path of the presidential line but the funny story about me being the first female member so two of my mayo colleagues arlen hansen and dave llewellyn both said to me you need to become an acus member and we're going to you know sponsor your membership you know you need people to endorse you as a member and i said okay great so uh, i apply and i had no idea that at the time that i applied that there weren't any women in the organization i figured well there aren't a lot but i didn't know i would be the first but so anyway So I'm the first and I'm accepted as a member and I come to the meeting and at that time, a leader would get up and announce the names of all the new ACUS members who would stand in the audience and then people would applaud, right? Not not intimidating at all. Here's our new members, right? So I'm sitting there patiently waiting for my name to be called. Doesn't happen, doesn't happen. So I stand up anyway when it's time for the applause. Yeah. And then the woman who was then the executive director came up to me afterwards and she was so apologetic and she was so embarrassed because she said, they had your name. I know they had your name. I gave them your name. I made a point of making sure they knew they had your name. And I can't believe that your name was not announced. And I said, well, I can believe it. (laughs) I mean, like, you think I haven't experienced this before? Of course I can believe it. 
So one of the things that excites me the most about this year's meeting is seeing the growth in the number of women in arthroplasty and how some of you, including you, Dr. Bernstein, have you know really helped advance the opportunities for women here. I feel like, okay, I helped you all get started, but you have just run with the ball. And for me, it's a great source of joy to see kind of you plant a seed and then you nurture it by supporting other women leaders. And now those women leaders just advance it even further. And I do believe the support woman to woman in AUKUS is kind of amazing. I mean, I think it's unparalleled to other things I've experienced that all of the women in the organization seem to really support each other. And it's, it's a great place to, to be and to... Well, we should support each other. I mean, regardless of our race, ethnicity, gender, right? Yes. We should support each other because at the end of the day, that is what will result in better outcomes for our patients. 100%. And a more rewarding career for us personally. Yeah. What was it like to be the female AUKUS president when what could the percentage of women in AUKUS have been at the time? Definitely, clearly under five. Right. Yeah, there's probably probably. Yeah, it's still like five or six or something like that. Oh, there was just like a handful of us. Yeah. Um, I just had great support. I mean, I didn't view myself as, oh, I'm the first woman president, Mm -hmm. although I knew I was. It was just like, okay, I'm the president. Here's our goals. Here's what matters to the association. Here's what we need to do. And then we worked as a team to do those things. And that's probably what allowed you to be successful is that you just did the job and didn't think too hard about the history that you were making at the time. Well, the way to engage people, especially in a volunteer organization, right, is to make sure that we're aligned on the vision. Why? Why are we doing this? Because if there's no solid and exciting reason as to why we're doing it, then you cannot get people aligned in terms of their passion. And so then how are they going to find the time? Everybody's busy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you n- tell me one orthopedic surgeon that's not busy. Right? Everybody's busy. And so to get them to contribute to their professional organization means that they have to be aligned with the values of the organization and willing to volunteer their time and talent and treasure to help it succeed in advance. How as an organization can we define those goals and as it evolves, obviously the goals of AUKUS 10 years ago are are different. How can we shape the future as young arthroplasty members to make sure that in 10 years we're going to be proud of the product that we make? Well, I think that the critical thing is to stay true to our North Star, which is the patient. Right? That is the critical thing. And to always be thinking, what are we doing that is supporting the patient that's going to produce a better outcome, better experience? And it can't be about us. Now, I know we're important, and I am not saying that orthopedic surgeons and joint surgeons should not be well compensated, because quite honestly, I think we should be well compensated. We studied very hard. We work very hard. We should be financially rewarded for those efforts. Okay. But having said that, right, if we lose sight of the reason why we're doing this, then all should be lost and ultimately all will be lost. And whenever we go out in terms of advocacy and appear to be advocating for ourselves or our pocketbook, that's a bad thing. Yeah, putting patients first. Because at the end of the day, every orthopedic surgeon 
makes a lot of money. Now, I'm not saying that they didn't work hard to get there and that they have worked hard. Years and years of training, we all know this, right? I see that they deserve that. But for the average family out there, where both parents are working, they're struggling to raise their kids, their out-of-pocket medical expenses have gone up and up and up, and the data is crystal clear. People have delayed medical care, they've gone into debt, the credit cards are maxed out. It is not good out there for the average American family. So quite honestly, they don't want to hear if we're going to complain or whine about we're not making enough money. How do we get equity for our patients, though, when most practices can't afford or take a loss to take care of them. No one really discusses that. Correct. And we talk a lot about Medicare and private reimbursements. We don't talk a lot about Medicaid reimbursements and those patients that don't have access to care because they have one doctor in their state right. that will see them. We touched on that a little bit in the symposium today. Yes, this is the conundrum. Okay, here's the reality of our healthcare system is that the payment model is not aligned with patient needs. Mm -hmm. The payment model is not patient-centric. So what we see, and you all know this, is that health systems and hospitals make essentially their entire margin on surgical practices and advanced imaging and procedures. And that subsidizes every other service line in the hospital. It subsidizes infectious disease, pediatrics, everything. Okay, but the hospital people aren't bad people, right? But they're trapped in this financial model where for them to make their margin, and remember, hospitals don't make a big margin. Hospitals will run in the two to maybe four or five percent margin range. Okay, now, as a comparator, we could look at any, I'm not picking on the orthopedic implant companies, but just as a comparator, right? If one of these companies is not making double-digit margin in a quarter, then something's not right for them, yeah. okay? So the payment model is flawed, deeply flawed. At the same time, we see record number of hospital closures, particularly in rural America. Yeah. This is also a very dangerous scenario because now patients don't have access to the kind of acute emergency care that they need. And if you have to drive an hour to a hospital when maybe you're having a stroke, that's a huge difference in terms of the potential yeah. outcome and that you could experience. And you don't have the gas money. Okay. Right. So, you don't have child so support to take care of the kids. They don't yeah. have that. There's many factors. So we have to look at, I believe that we have to look at hospitals as essential to public safety. We would never think of people not having a fire department or a police department. Okay, you just, it, you, like that wouldn't even cross your mind. But yet, we're now seeming to accept that we can have communities where they don't have clear access to, more convenient access to a hospital, or appropriate geographic access to a hospital. So appropriate right. geographic access. Correct. Meanwhile, you have 10 hospitals in the most affluent communities right. piled up on top of each other that are cherry picking the high insurance or private. As was talked about today, right, the key is we need risk adjustment. And until the payment model is going to be risk adjusted for a multitude of factors, we're going to continue to see cherry picking and lemon dropping of patients, okay? 
And the concept that it will all come out in the wash, which was how people thought of it early on, not true because people have changed the clothes that are going in the washing machine, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not taking care of the same cohort. I'm now taking care of a healthier cohort that is more likely to have the social support to be able to be discharged to home. And that way I can have a better financial profile and I can save more money in the bundle and then I will get more savings financially, personally to me, depending on the arrangement. So we have to change the financial payment model to understand that it costs more to take care of sicker and underserved patients. We saw that today, $7,000 more for a Medicaid patient. Now, so who, who's taking care of these patients? The safety net hospitals and safety net surgeons, which tend to be academic surgeons. It's not sustainable. The academic medical centers face increasing pressure in terms of their own ability to make a margin. And so fundamentally, I think the key is to change the payment model. Now, it's interesting, I'll add a caveat. Why has there been resistance to change the payment model and risk adjust? Two factors. One, it's hard to risk adjust and we don't necessarily have the infrastructure. I mean, you heard data presented today about how little we're tracking such simple demographic factors as race, ethnicity, right? That's nuts. That's just craziness. Okay, but so it's, do we have the ability to capture data that is going to allow us to risk adjust? Mm -hmm. The second is a more fundamental and philosophical argument which goes like this. If we set up different payment structures where essentially we're acknowledging that some patients are at higher risk for poor outcomes and we adjust the payment model to in fact give you more slack, to basically say we know that there's gonna be a higher percentage of readmissions for this cohort of patients. So the philosophical difference is if we set up a different payment structure, we're going to create two levels of quality. One level that says, here's the quality we expect if you're healthy, and here's the quality we expect if you're poor and unhealthy. And will that, in essence, okay, reinforce the disparities that currently exist? So I was on a panel a few years ago and we had a lot of high power names that you would recognize in the policy arena and some academicians. And so they bring forth this argument about this is why we can't risk adjust because it's gonna create a two-tiered model. And I said, well, I spoke up, well, I can tell you, I'm in the trenches, I take care of patients and it's already a two-tiered model. Like, I don't know what you're thinking because Poor patients don't get care now. And it can be more of a spectrum. I mean, I, I don't think of it as tears. I think there's a way to do it where it's over a spectrum. It's like someone doesn't have to be A or B. They can be 8.1, 8.2, 8.3, you know, and, and I think. Well, the question is, is it to increase access or is it to improve quality? And I'm in Indiana and I take care of patients from six, seven hours away. And let's say you risk adjust, and now all of a sudden the surgeon in the community that never does these complex revisions is getting a financial incentive to do this. 
they're not going to do a quality job if they get paid well. They they might actually tackle that case when I would be I would be much happier to take them and take care of them and do an excellent job, even though they're from further away. So so there has to be a balance in terms of Centers mitigating, yeah, having a center of excellence for a particular problem. In which case, then you really can improve the quality of care because you know that with these modifiable risk factors that you might risk adjust payment for, at least you can reduce and equalize the outcome expectations, potentially. So maybe that's the two-tiered system is like these centers of excellence. I would would hope that our colleagues are mature enough to recognize the, the patients in surgical cases that they're comfortable handling and those that they're not. And I know that we still have- Certainly you'd hope so, yeah. You know, surgeons that have what I would call uh, lack of judgment, right? And they take on something that they shouldn't have. That's always going to be the case. Nobody is ever going to have completely perfect judgment about what they should do or not do. The key is where can they refer that complex patient, right? And so referring that patient to you and knowing that you're not disparaging them and that you're supporting them because ultimately so we have to be a team. Yeah. We have to be a team at a tertiary referral center and a team with the home ortho surgeon, right? Because that patient that lives six hours away from you, when they have an acute need, the ortho surgeon at home needs to be on board and part of that yeah. team. Because again, if we take it back to how do we best serve that patient, we best serve that patient by creating home. this team. Mm-hmm. One more question. Will you just talk to us a little bit about your transition to working in industry, how you came to that Mm -hmm. decision, and and what you're doing now? Well, as I say, I've gone entrepreneurial now. So, yes, it's quite the jump, and it's very exciting, and I'm having a lot of fun. And, you know, I'm at a point in my career where I can do that, and I can try something that's just crazy and a little bit out there that keeps me in my in my zone of passion, which is transforming the delivery of musculoskeletal care to be higher quality, more equitable, lower cost, right? So I am co-founder and chief medical officer at Vori Health, that's V-O-R-I, and we are a virtual musculoskeletal medical practice. So we employ health coaches, non-surgeon MSK physicians, typically physiatrists, nurse practitioners, PAs, physical therapists, nutritionists. And our model is that we can see those patients that, for example, the primary care physician identifies and, and then provide these integrated virtual services, including virtual uh, physical therapy, and work to get them better by doing evidence-based non-operative care. Now, can all MSK care be delivered virtually? Of course not course not right sometimes some patients will still need an injection although if you want to actually go and look at the evidence-based literature or does an injection actually do the patient any good that's a whole nother like Mm, debate and conversation okay but anyway so our goal is to provide that patient with a great experience non-surgical care and then if they get better fantastic because we know that we can get more patients better with effective non-operative care than what happens now. And if they're not getting better or they have a red flag or whatever, then we're going to get them to a great surgeon. So the surgeon can be more efficient Mm -hmm. because the surgeon's clinic is now not full of Mm. 
non-surgical patients, which and there's a politically nicer way to put it, but I can't think of it at the moment. And it just goes like this. Surgeons are surgeons and they want to do surgery and they want their clinic full of surgical patients. Yeah. And most surgeons don't want to do non-operative care. And so and I would argue most patients this. want surgeons to do surgery well, right? right? They, right. they want good For, surgeons. Exactly. 100%. And so we are increasingly less trained on non-operative MSK care, yes. even, though, yeah. even though some of us want to pretend that we are the MSK experts, and so we should see everybody. But hmm. that is really to protect our financial interests by controlling the patient. Uh, oh, yeah. I would okay. also argue that there's, uh, not to interrupt, but there's a difference between non-operative medical care because someone's not at end-stage arthritis versus non-operative medical care when they have severe arthritis but are not yet optimized for a variety of risk factors. So that's just... So uh, pre-op optimization can be done easily and beautifully in the virtual space as well. Exactly. Okay. And it drives more convenience for patients. I'll share this one story because it impacted me. So when I was still at Yale and we were doing our tele-rehab pilot, I was going in to see one of my total knee patients for a pre-op visit, and she was 85 and older. And I remember thinking as I was going up to the door, oh, I'm not going to talk to her about the pilot because she's not going to be interested. And then I caught myself, and I thought, well, Mary, that's very biased. How do you know? You're just projecting that she's like your mother who you know, doesn't even have a cell phone, couldn't get online to save her life, right? And that your patient won't be interested. And that's being very judgmental and I'm discriminating against her. So, all right, so I regroup on my, check my internal biases. I go in and I say, you know, would you be interested? And she said, yes, I think I'd like to try it. Okay, so we, we put her on the program. She comes, I do her surgery. She comes back for a two week recheck. She's doing great. And so I asked the open-ended question, tell me about your experience with the tele-rehab program. She says, I love it. I said, tell me more. Why do you love it? This is what I learned from her. Here's what she said. I love it because I don't have to get dressed. I don't have to put on my makeup, have my hair done, have my house clean, and put my dog in the spare bedroom for the physical therapist to come to my house. Nor does my daughter have to take time off from work to drive me to therapy. Right. I love it. Yeah. It is so Wonderful convenient. Point. Don't take it away from me. <laughs> And that was a moment when I realized, like, the more patient-centered we become, the more appeal and application we will have across all demographics. Yeah. So I had the opportunity to co-found this, this company and really saw it as a way, again, of being very patient-centered and an appreciation that change like this was going to be very difficult in the established medical centers where they're trapped by our bad payment model mm -hmm. to really advance transformation of clinical care. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I took the plunge and now here I am. That's great. And now when we see a referral from Bori Health, we know that that patient's ready for Teed up. surgery. Perfect. Or they really need to see the surgeon for consultation. Right. right? Exactly. Because, exactly. And, and yeah. that's high value for surgeons. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. So much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.